You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, Jackie Coppell, and today we have a very special episode featuring Mike Pusateri and All Things Video creator, James Creech. Mike Pusateri is the founder and CEO of Ben Pixels, a global media company serving creators and brands. As a top 25 MCN with over 24,000 creators and 1 billion monthly views, Ben Pixels represents celebrities like Kevin Hart and Joe Rogan, as well as online video creators in the gaming and comedy verticals. Ben Pixels also offers content claiming and audience development services for brands, including Funimation, RLJ Entertainment, Live Nation, and more. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. James Creech is the co-founder and CEO of Paladin Software, the premier technology company for MCNs and digital media companies, including Maker Studios, Awesomeness TV, Studio 71, Defy Media, Federator Networks, and more. The Paladin platform helps digital video networks streamline processes increase efficiency, and grow revenue. James, welcome to your show. Thanks, good to be here. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here, stepping in for you and and turning the tables on you, James, a little bit. So let's start with the beginning, which is the big news of the week. This week, Paladin officially launched as a dedicated software company spun out from the technology arm of Ben Pixels. So what prompted this change and what does that all mean? Ben Pixels grew up in the the MCN space since 2009. Mike started the business in Vegas and was originally developing mobile applications. So we've had technology at our core throughout. And when I entered the business a little over two years ago, we saw an opportunity at one point to take the technology we built internally to power our network and the brand services division and license that to other media companies. And what started as an experiment quickly became its own business division that, that took off and I think surprised all of us. Ultimately, we thought it would be good to separate that as an independent entity that could focus entirely on serving those customers. You know, the inbound interest was the most surprising thing to me. You know, we were building this technology over many years and iterating it, obviously making mistakes and improving. And a lot of those industry conversations were, what are you using to manage your network? Or what are you using for, you know, supplementing rights management? And ultimately, you know, we started showing it. Those conversations went really well. Like, wow, that's, there's, you're doing a lot of things that we haven't thought of or that, that would be very beneficial to us. And immediately we're like, you know, let's, let's start licensing this technology. And, and, you know, the rest is really history for that 12-month period. Tremendous amount of success. Definitely some really good market validation. In layman's terms, what does that mean That mean for people, right? Ben Pixels is staying as an, you know. Yeah, we're focused on media. We're going to be focused on continuing to grow our network, obviously in the YouTube ecosystem and beyond onto Facebook and elsewhere, providing great services for our creators. I think that's really one of the unique big benefits um, to our creators is 
we're able to capture you know a lot of data and a lot of revenue on behalf of the partners well beyond just their individual channel content and that's that's the big value and that's really you know the differentiator for us in the space so we're going to continue to do that continue to provide services for brands around rights management and audience development and you know ultimately keep growing that media focus in paladin yeah and for paladin it really comes down to building a software business, right? As a high growth tech startup that's focused on building the best in-class enterprise tools to address the pain points of multi-channel networks, next generation video publishers, traditional media companies, et cetera, that are trying to understand the new media landscape. And again, it comes down to focus. It comes down to putting the right people in the right spots to double down on that market opportunity. You touched on it a little bit, but can you go into a, some further depth in terms of how the software business originally came about? The software business was built early on for ourselves. And ultimately, through many years of learning and improving, we had opportunities from others in the in the space we had relationships with to show the software to them. And we, we got a tremendous response early on. And at that moment, we realized, hmm, we have something here. At that point, we, with some small changes to the software, obviously, to be able to license it, we started that process. And it was highly successful. A lot of great market feedback. Yeah. So I guess in December, 2014, we had had some inbound interest. And as we were having these conversations, it was certainly clear that people were struggling with maintaining an effective claiming process on YouTube or managing a large distributed network of creators and paying them on time and, you know, helping onboard new partners. And so we had been building those solutions for such a long time that we said, well, you know, show you what we've been up to and love to learn more what's on your roadmap and what you've built. And one of those early conversations was with Defy Media. So I met Keith Richman at a YouTube event. YouTube was kind enough to connect us. And, and they were working on an initiative that they had launched initially in 2014. And that was the Smosh Games Alliance program. They had a tremendous response. Thousands of applications came pouring in on the first day. Uh, but unfortunately, they weren't able to keep up with the demand. They had a small team and they were manually reviewing the applications and trying to find out which users were over 13 and could have a channel partner, which were over 18 and didn't require parental consent. How are we going to pay these people? Ultimately, over the course of the remaining year, partnered uh, less than 300 channels. And they shut down the program because they couldn't handle the, the traumatic response. So fast forward again to this meeting, I connect with Keith and he introduced me to some other members of the team and they had thought about rebooting the Smosh Games Alliance. And so we said, well, we can help, you know, we'll, we'll leverage our technology to alleviate some of those manual processes from before. We relaunched in March, 2015. And in the first day we partnered over a thousand channels. So in 24 hours, we've done more work, you know, onboarding creators than they've been able to accomplish in a year, you know, give them access to a white labeled creator dashboard, track the payment activity. And overnight, I mean, that network has done phenomenally well. There are over 6,000 creators now, and they're a top, you know, five gaming MCN in the world by, by creator population. So from there, we, we started having other conversations and we're fortunate to work with several other of the largest MCNs, not just here in the U.S. with Maker and at the time Collective Digital Studios, which became Studio 71 and Awesomeness TV, but now globally with partners in Europe and Latin America and, and Asia. When you have an office in Poland. Correct? We do, yeah. We so do. Our, our engineering team is largely in Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have about 15 devs in our Krakow office. A CTO who's Norwegian who lives uh, in Porsgrunn right outside Oslo. And then a handful of engineers scattered throughout Montenegro and Romania. Very nice. At what point did you realize 
this really needed to be its own company. It was pretty clear that this was a big opportunity and we had, it was really about putting the right team members, you know, on the field in the right positions. That was really what it was about. And it was pretty clear once, once we started, you know, we had that market validation and we started to get the feedback from users and customers that it was the right thing to do. So it was pretty organic. In sort of separating the two independent companies, you mentioned the right team members. So what about James? Why was he the right choice for CEO? You know, from the very beginning, James had a leadership style and an entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, that resonated. It was clear, you know, from the very first moment I met him, he had that. And I think it's a, it's a tough thing to go out. And I knew that he had that toughness. You know, the most important thing I think about a leader is, is being able to, you know, hire the right people, bring in the best talent and see and understand that type of talent early on is a very difficult thing. James has that talent. He can do that. And that was um, that stood out for sure very clearly early on. Some of the people that he was able to, to recruit in. There's a whole host of things I could say. I mean, this guy works extremely hard. His work ethic is beyond many that I've ever met to put in, you know, 18, 20 hour days. That sounds like I'm making it up and I'm not actually. To put in that type of effort and drive, it's very, very impressive. So I tell people in the space, I mean, he is one of the young, great leaders in the space, and I absolutely believe that. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I feel really fortunate to have this next step and a journey with not just myself, but Ole, our CTO, and with Thomas Kramer, our head of product, who are phenomenally gifted and, and the best co-founders a guy could ask for, but also a really solid bench of talent behind us in the engineering team with close to 20 engineers in Europe, with our staff here in LA that supports the customers and helps evangelize what we're doing. And so when we first you know, started talking about an opportunity that would best serve the market and the customer base, uh, respective on both sides of the business, I was excited to work with the team and knew that, you know, we had a long way to go, but we had learned so much from the time and the effort spent to acquire the customers and build this business from the ground up. It's a very unique position to be in when most companies don't have an opportunity to find that product market fit or to incubate their technology over four years like we've had. To now start in such a strong position is unmatched. It was, it was pretty natural, you know. It sounds like everything's been pretty organic. I mean, it, it really, it's been like that since the early days. I mean, we've really tried to run the business prudently, make profitable decisions, focus on opportunities in a logical way. We talk about payments. I mean, that has been, you know, when I, when I think of our team and operational excellence, because that's really kind of a, that's really behind the scenes. We have a really incredible operational team. And paying on time and taking the time to make sure those payments are accurate, we've never missed a payment to our partners. We pride ourselves on that. And, you know, the fact that we're, we're going into six years of profitability, so we really do make profitable decisions all the way across the organization that runs down to, you know, every person on the team. So since it's clearly not a breakup, but a, yeah. a breakthrough yeah. is what I'll say. There you go. What does the future hold for both companies? For Ben Pixels, and maybe Mike, you can answer that, and then for Paladin in general. Sure. Ben Pixels is going to continue to focus on the media side of the business. It's, it's a technology-enabled uh, media services business. It's ultimately what it is, and we're going to continue to do that around rights management, audience development, and obviously continue to grow our network. In a meaningful way. So yeah, we're excited about the future. There's a lot of focus there. The teams are now focused and now it's exciting. I mean, there's there's an independence to each organization for a very specific reason. And it's not only around the people, but it's the focus. And that focus is, is very clear for Ben Pixels. 
I couldn't agree more. I mean, this decision is prompted entirely by focus, right? The way you run a high growth tech startup is very different than the way you run a very well-performing media business with a growing MCN. What we're doing on the Paladin software side is really just continuing to focus on building a great product and listening to our customers. So finding out what they need and as the business models change for next generation media companies of all shapes and sizes, whether that's MCNs, next gen publishers, record labels, studios, et cetera, we want to be out front of those changes. It certainly means building a multi-platform product for that ecosystem and means getting out in front of how uh, monetization is happening from brand deals and distribution deals on OTT and SVOG platforms. And it's looking ahead to how do we address the pain points that large-scale enterprise customers face today. So that's a nice segue into my next question, which is what other businesses can benefit from Paladin aside from MCNs? You touched on it a little bit there, but to be really clear about your future customers and, and by all means, let them know that you're there. So if you think about what multi-channel networks have done in the television and film space, they're disrupting kind of the traditional media landscape in a unique way. We're going to see a continued growth of MCNs, especially internationally. So here in the U.S., we have perhaps a bit of a stymied view sometime about the legacy MCN model, say 1.0, where you're uh, monetizing purely off of AVOD revenue. That model has to evolve, right? We're seeing MCNs become next-gen studios like an awesomeness TV. We're seeing people build global ad networks and provide services to brands. We're going to continue to see that as well as specialized focused MCNs around specific content type or language, geography, et cetera. So continue growth there, especially in international growth markets. Future customers for us include potentially influence marketing agencies, certainly next generation publishers who are disrupting what's happening in traditional publishing. So folks like Woven Digital, BuzzFeed, Mashable, Vice, etc. And then also folks on the music distribution side. So digital distribution companies like Valley Arm Digital and Believe, Be Quiet, etc. We want to work with everyone who is changing the way that media is produced, consumed, monetized, and uh, has an audience built around it. Um, so we've covered a lot about sort of the two companies. Sure. So let's do a little bit of a time travel. To go back to the early days of Pixels. Mike, how did you find yourself in the digital space? What drew you to it? I started the business in 2009, as James mentioned, focused on mobile. It was the early days of the App Store, and we started really just doing enterprise mobile apps. We were building apps for healthcare companies and others, and we ended up doing a project with Shaquille O'Neal. So we actually built his official iPhone and Android app. And through a, a relationship through a partner of NetPixels, Anthony Bonifazio, we and Marty Cordova, both are very close with Shaquille's agent, we ended up furthering that relationship and were contacted by YouTube. We wanted to work with Shaq, so we put that together. That was part of the original content initiative. They were spending a lot of money. We ended up doing a project with Shaq, with YouTube. You know, that was the beginning. That's how we got into the business. We realized there was a tremendous opportunity around rights, rights management. There was a huge amount of content out there with Shaquille's content and others that was being monetized, you know, clearly, you know, not by the rightful owners. So we thought, let's take advantage of this opportunity. And we, we focused on that initially. And that organically grew into an MCN. We brought on an early team member that understood that space in gaming. And that's how that the business began was really rights management and multi-channel network. We started building software to make the process efficient right out of the right out of the gate for both. And that was the beginning of obviously the software business. So it ultimately evolved over about a four-year period. What is the story behind your closely knowing Shaq's agent? So Marty and Anthony went to high school with Shaquille O'Neal's agent. Yeah. Wow. Perry Rogers. So 
Anthony was at lunch with Perry and said, hey, you know, we're working on mobile, obviously. And then that led to the deal with Shaq. And then from there, it, it was, you know, it, it happened pretty quickly. It was really interesting, all the conversations and then how that process went mm-hmm. down with the original content initiative. And by the way, hanging out with Shaq was a very pretty interesting cool. thing. Yeah. I have his, one of his shoes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It must be a large 22, shoe. 22, yeah. Yeah. That's a large... Very interesting experience. By the way, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. That's awesome. So that was fun. That was a fun experience. It's actually interesting that you got started in digital with a traditional celebrity. Right. Or a more traditional celebrity. Right, right. And he has this massive archive of content. Well, and Shaq is, is such an entrepreneur, right? He's he is. Yeah. So very much ventures. so. Yeah. Very much an entrepreneur. And his team, including Perry, have done an amazing job for him over the years. Yeah. James, what is your background? You know, you joined Ben Pixels. Where did you come from? A little bit of history there. Yeah, so I uh, spent some time in the gaming world. I also have a background in online video advertising and ad tech. Worked at an LA-based startup called Channel Factory and over two and a half years helped grow that team from five employees to 40 people and, and working with some of the biggest agencies and brands in the world, which was a phenomenal experience. And then from there, uh, met Mike actually through some friends and at a conference, Digital, mm-hmm. Digital Hollywood, a few years back. I initially got connected because I was working on a passion project, starting kind of a, a small business on the side with some friends to help monetize MCN creator content outside of YouTube. Really early days back when you know, this wasn't what a lot of other people were exploring. And so we were looking at just mountains of Ben Pixels data at the time. And you know, Mike said, well, hey, what do you think about kind of getting involved and helping us? And at first it was like, yeah, maybe not because you guys are a customer for this, this business that we're working on. But ultimately, as I mentioned, just was the right opportunity at the right time with a great team. Now, you guys have sort of, you've flown a little bit under the radar as Ben Pixels. Big time, a lot, you know? a lot under the radar. Why, was that a choice? And if so, why did you make that choice? I get asked that sometimes. I mean, it's really, I don't know, it's just being heads down and running the business and really focusing on executing is really why. But we're working on it. Mm-hmm. We're on podcasts now. Big podcast. Big podcast. Big podcast. That's right. All right. Well, then let's get uh, into some of the fun stuff. So how did you, uh, well, you mentioned how you two met. Yeah. Was it Digital fireworks yeah, right it away? Was. Yeah. It was, Just... a, we, it was slow motion and we ran together. It was on a beach. It was raining yeah, too, which was we weird. Were, was That's weird. And, no, actually, it was at Dinsmore. Paul Densmore, Eric Brownstein. Yeah, Brownstein intro. Yeah, you were in the lobby. We met and yeah. then we connected. But there's actually a funny story there. So the, the company that, or this, the company he was doing his project with was um, actively, you know, and I, I knew the owner and we were talking and he, he's like, yeah, I'm going to be hiring James. And, you know, I'm like thinking, well, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah. So Mike's a competitive guy. <laughs> right. He got so, engaged. Right I, couldn't, so we, I couldn't tell. Couldn't yeah, tell. We, we actually at that moment. And then did you lose so a friend? I, no, 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 it was it was funny because what happened is I actually so we worked it out and James came on board and John Miller started calling me Mike Pochateri, which I, I actually like that. It's a great like name. It's a great name. I, I mean. He wears it with pride. I do. I was going to say, well, you either wear it with pride or you, again, fly under the radar <laughs> yeah, and just don't right. tell and anyone. And then you steal everyone. <laughs> yeah. But I, look, I think if you spot talent, you spot talent. Yeah, and no, for you sure. You go for that was, it. That was an easy one. Yeah. Did you appreciate the wooing? <laughs> I don't know. It all happened very quickly. I remember meeting Marty and Tom for the first time. Ole flew out from Norway. Uh, we had a chance to get together. And it was very clear to me. I mean, I was thinking about staying in the ad tech world and had opportunities where I probably would have made more money and had a bigger title. But I saw a path for more professional development. I liked being in a company 
at an earlier stage where I could have an impact and have a voice, which was an opportunity that Pixels gave me from day one. I had a seat at the table. They were interested in my feedback. Yeah. And look, the next few months, the next six to nine months were hard. Mike and I were out there pitching against people who had raised more money than us, that had um, larger sales teams and bigger technology budgets. And we lost a lot of deals. Yeah. But that process, doing it together and knowing, just keeping our heads up through it and learning from every experience, that's where we are today. In fact, I mean, there's certainly a lot of advantages from that as well, because that's what motivated us to build a lot of the software that we have. If we had one a lot of that business early on, we would have become, I don't know, a media agency or pure play kind of rights management service provider, uh, which is a business that we're very much in, but that needed to evolve beyond YouTube. And if we had gotten too well ingrained in one of those things, it would have distracted us from the bigger market opportunities each of us now is able to tackle. 13 and 14, everybody was raising money. So we had the underdog, you know, fire because it was, we were the underdog. And I, I love that. I love that position. So we were, it was, it was constant, you know, press releases coming out of 10 million here, 50 million there, 25 and 35 and acquisition, blah, blah, blah. You know, and we just kept the head down, kept moving, kept driving more business, you know, double digit EBITDA every year, six I mean, we're proud of these things. It was an, it's an underdog thing. And, and it's true. We got kicked around quite a bit, but uh, we learned a lot. I think we, you know, that people talk about runway and things like that. I mean, we've never really had that, you know, it's really about landing landing the planes that we have. And that's ultimately what we've been focused on. There hasn't been that external pressure. When you're running a profitable business, it's a different perspective. You know, you're looking at it. I think you're calmer in meetings. And I think it's just, it's a different way to go about uh, your day, really. And working with your partners. I mean, you, you give an energy. It's a little bit different when you're running a business. You don't need every single deal. You want to do business with the right partners. And at the same time, you know, the, the funding events, the M&A activity that happened in that period was a great thing for the industry. Right. It's helped it everyone. The, the rising tide has Absolutely. certainly lifted all boats. And, and we are so proud of, of being a part of the media and entertainment revolution. Uh, but for us, it was just we had a different ethos. We had people approach us to to buy parts of the business or to invest in the company. And, and it just wasn't the right strategic partner or the right timing for us. And we liked having control and being able to kind of influence our own destiny, which, you know, that need may change in the future, especially in, sure. in the software business. But we're proud of those origins and the discipline that it's given us, both financially, but uh, from a broader cultural context as well. A lot of hard decisions. You know, you, you can't just make a call. You can't chase every shiny object. You have to be disciplined. You can't hire everybody you want to hire. That's tough to do. You can't go out and hire a bunch of salespeople. You but know? those are some really good life lessons. Uh, yeah. I would say coming from an attempt to be an entrepreneur like yeah. you guys are, how do you keep, I mean, you're speaking to a lot of issues that people, especially in our society, and yeah. the entrepreneurial society in which yeah. we live, you hit a lot of setbacks and yeah. you have a lot of people, you watch them get, get the things you're after uh, or, you know, speaking to what you said where you can't do everything. You have to focus and you can't hire everyone you might sure. want to hire or yeah. you can't, you know, you can't take on every project. How do you sort of keep going when it's not looking that great? It's not for everybody. And yeah, look, we'll be the first to admit it's yeah. an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. I think we are hooked on the adrenaline rush. Yeah. So we put ourselves through this kind of abuse because we like it and can't imagine doing anything else. But it's not for everybody. And I think that today, entrepreneurship and startup culture is glamorized to a certain extent. I think that's a natural result of a bit of survivorship bias. We see the funding events. We see when people get acquired. We don't hear of all the failures along the way and the setbacks. But there are so many great entrepreneurs out there who are taking the the jump, entering the arena, as Mike likes to say. And our hat is off to all of them. The failure that 
some entrepreneurs go through, and I've had a tremendous amount of it early on, that, you know, that allows growth. It's, there's really, a, there's a good, as challenging and as painful as it is when it happens, the growth that comes from that is really meaningful. And I think that that resonated for me and helped build the business the way we did. And I think, too, with people that are on the team and their perspective and different feedback and growing the business the right way is, is really, you know, it's that's the lesson, I think, for other entrepreneurs is you are going to get kicked in the teeth. It's going to happen. You have to be able to get up from that. And some people aren't okay with getting up from that. And that's that's fine. That's fine, but many are. But you don't hear those stories. You hear the stories about the big rounds, or you hear the stories about whatever the big acquisitions, and and that's okay. That's what that's the media's job. But ultimately, there's a lot of organizations like us that they focus on building a good business. They focus on profitability. They they focus on treating their people well. You know, I really feel like we we treat our people really well. We pay well, and I think ultimately that's what it's about. It's it's about you know respect and doing the right thing with the business. And it takes time to get to that point from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And it is, it's a long, narrow road. There's not a lot of people on it and you get knocked off it. But that philosophy and that fighting spirit is something that we wanted to capture and in fact reflect in the new company name, which is a big part of the choice behind Paladin. Paladins are knights that are fighters. And that's what, when I look at our team, uh, when I look at the technology team in Krakow, those guys work so hard and yeah. sweat through so much to make sure that the product is perfect and works for the customers every time. When I look at Ole and Thomas's efforts or our account management team, Jen Josephine here in the office, or what we're doing on the marketing side, these people are striving for excellence and putting in the time and have that fighting spirit that they're not going to quit when things get tough. And you know, when you have those hard times and you make it through it as a team, it's so, it's so much. Oh, it's so great. It's so great, you know, after. And and when things don't work out, it's super painful. I mean, we, we've had some really big deals not go down and it, it's a painful experience, but we've learned, again, learned so much. And, and, and we it, always leave it all on the line. I remember yeah. one of the first things when I came into Ben Pixels is we had an opportunity with one of the largest broadcasters in the world. And we were working on a digital rights management claiming opportunity for them. And our whole team spent 48 hours, I mean, two full days claiming everything we could on these two titles. And everyone from all of our interns to our audience development team who normally had no idea what to do about rights management got you know, YouTube certified or was trained in content claiming all the way up to Mike. You know, Mike and I were claiming at 2 a.m. and ch- chatting over yeah. Skype about who was going to claim the next big video. Yeah. And in that 48 hours, we claimed over a billion views and we ended up losing that business, but I will never view those two days as a failure because I grew so much closer to the team and loved the fact that I was part of an organization that was going to put it all on the line to win the business. In terms of being an entrepreneur, we're talking about it, is the hardest part the failure, is the heartbreak, or, or is there something else that's actually even harder? I mean, my perspective, I love every single minute. I really do. I, I enjoy every aspect of it, even when it's hard. I love it because there's freedom, there's control. I mean, everything you see here and the business that we've created has been created by us. That's a pretty proud thing, you know? But when you look at the space that we're in and the excitement and this opportunity, I mean, this is a defining moment in entertainment and we are right in the middle of it, right in the middle. I mean, long-term on the media side of the business, tremendous amount of opportunity. I mean, we're just really getting started with this. So it's exciting, I love it. I think we all at some level have an entrepreneurial spirit, an entrepreneurial drive. 
And to be in an environment surrounded by those people, it's motivating. It's you see what other people are contributing and able to deliver, and it makes you want to be a part of that as well. It is an adrenaline rush, as I've said before. It, there's nothing like it. It's completely exhilarating. But the hardest parts for being an entrepreneur are the internal challenges. If you're in a big company, it's all about external challenges. What's going to change in market and consumer behavior and what's the competition doing? When you're in a small organization like us, it's how do you manage uh, communication across the distributed team? Working with customers for Paladin on five continents is challenging. It's maintaining that focus and keeping everyone aligned on what are the goals of the organization. Those are the things that make or break you when you're at this stage. And there's a different life cycles of the business. You know, there's a skill set that takes a business from zero to one. Mike is a phenomenal entrepreneur and has done that uh, in many ways throughout his life. Then there's skill sets that lend themselves to scaling the business from one to 10, 10 beyond. And, you know, I view that as my strength. And we were fortunate again to have the time building and incubating the technology. And now that we found product market fit, it's all about execution. All right. So a little bit of less business stuff, personal stuff. What are some books that you have read that whether recently or, or just in life have given you sort of Oh, Mike and I swap books all the time. I'm a big fan of Zero to One, Peter Thiel. Uh, Love The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Uh, The P. Marka blog archives are also excellent. So many good reads, and and Mike has recommended a number of awesome books to me as well. Yeah, from Felix Dennis, which is How to Get Rich. It's a... It's just that we haven't finished the book yet. Obviously. Yeah, but, yeah, it's, it's like a handbook. I literally have it by my bed. It's just, I mean, I highly recommend that book for entrepreneurs. We actually have a library of some of our favorite business books yeah. here in the office yeah. and we share them with, with our employees. Yeah. You know, people are like, what can I read next? Or what, yeah. what would help me in this situation? And mm-hmm. oftentimes the best way to get additional experience is reading about other people's right. past experience. Yeah. Do you guys read anything non-work related? My, My wife through the Twilight series. I do not read. I do not. I was going to say I Daniel Steele. I no. don't. I really don't. I'm no. so boring as it relates okay. to that. I really don't. I sometimes get a quick you departure. Started, didn't you um, started. Well, you had a couple recently. Or? So Adam Reimer recommended The Martian to me. And oh, I had oh, a sure. It was phenomenal. Sure. Very good book. What else have I read recently? Oh, so Glasgow Phillips, one of the co-founders of Maker Studios, friend of mine, has written some phenomenal novels. And I've read uh, his first novel, Tuscaloosa, which is brilliantly written. And I am soon going to start on one of his other books. So a shout out to Glasgow because he really is an exceptional writer. What's coming next? If you had three predictions, what would they be? And that that's an all-encompassing question. Yeah, I'll focus on the media space. I think that there's a tremendous evolution going on right now in our space, specifically that moniker of MCN. That a lot of people don't like it. It's really every business in the space is different. So it's, it's really a media-based tagline that really doesn't make any sense. But ultimately, there's a tremendous amount of evolution continuing in this space. Clearly, Facebook is going to play a massive role. We're super excited about that, especially when monetization gets turned on. You probably heard the news, the rights manager, so that's a big yeah. step forward. So the monetization is going to be big, so we're excited about that. Obviously, YouTube is massive. It's going to continue to be the player. Facebook, is, as I mentioned, but other platforms are going to come into play. I think the monetization structure needs to be there for them to be valid, and that's coming online more and more. So we're, you know, we're excited about Snapchat. I think ultimately... You know, others are, it's to be determined. On the software side, I think we're going to see more products for creators and brands and enterprise. There's a clear need for solutions that help them address 
pain points from scaling revenue to scaling audience to understanding the data footprint in, in this space. And especially as we enter a multi-platform world, there's a lot to be done there. So that's probably the first prediction. Two, I think we're going to see more ways for creators to engage with their audience. And that's through live streaming. It's through VR, AR, 360 video, uh, those real-time connections with the fans and allowing them to contribute and change and have a voice in the content is huge. And three, you know, we talked about Mike's a competitive guy. He also plays squash, but he's getting up there, and I'm going to start learning how to play squash. So I'm going to predict here on the podcast right now that I'm going to beat Mike at squash. Uh, okay, yeah, that's not happening. Yeah. But that's no, nice. I, I appreciate him even remotely considering that because yeah, that's never happening. Right. No, I. I um, so I. So I got it. You got it. That's, yeah. Yes. No, we we are Good. clear We're that that understand. that's not happening. And I will never go rock climbing with him. Because oh, I destroy him. What would he destroy him? There you go. I'm going to be the first guy to say, I just VR. I just at this point, I don't get it. I'm just, I don't. Get I love it. it. Say it. I'm sorry. I don't get it. I'm never going to put that on. I'm, a, I'm obviously a lot older than James. Not much, but a lot older. <laughs> and I think ultimately, I'm just not going to put that on. I'm not. I mean, I if there is a 360 experience that I could. But which, by the way, I have, I think, has been amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, in a whole host of events, right? But actual VR I just I've, and I've played with it and, and it is it is very cool when it's on but I think regularly that's going to be a primary entertainment experience for me I don't feel it if they make the headsets smaller and more manageable let's say and you feel cooler for instance <laughs> yeah. do you think it's something that you'd, you'd take on because obviously Facebook has banked at least a billion dollars on it alone I uh, so they, they are massive amount of money too. yeah look I mean the Wii you know is something I'm like, you You need that to participate in gaming. You know, it's Xbox 360 crushes it. I mean, I don't know. I think ultimately I'm just not putting something on, wearing it. I don't know. I'm not a wearable guy. I don't know, James, what, I don't know what you think about that. But to me, I'm, I'm just not feeling it. 360 video, I think, will, will resonate more across platforms. And it's going to be something that you could just, you pull your phone out and you could experience the Oscars, you know, the red carpet, mm-hmm. carpet on the Oscars or whatever it may be. Quick, easy, in and out, but that's my take. Do you have any predictions on VR? Yeah, look, I disagree. I think VR is going to resonate with a new audience. I think there's more money to be made in augmented reality when you think about the applications to automotive and to travel and to education and, and healthcare and so many other fields. But um, well, VR that will... Thought. No, that's true. Right. And and that's why I think it will be more accessible. I think in the VR space, it will evolve certainly beyond a media entertainment use case. We're going to see VR used for all of those same industries. Commercial real estate. Yeah, for sure, right? Decorating a house and sure. it's halfway across the world you've never sure. seen it before. But VR is a brave new world, much in the same way that mobile changed our consumer habits. I think we're going to see VR dramatically shift the way we interact. I think to clarify, I wouldn't lean back with VR. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't do a lean back experience with it. Personally, I sort of fall in between the two of you. Oh, you do? I sort of think that I question how revolutionary it's going to be. But I do agree with you, James, that it is going to bring in a different consumer. And I think that the sales of these headsets will be phenomenal. And I think there are a lot of people who love tech and want to really embrace it and want to be first adopters. And I think there will be initial success. But I actually think the the longevity of it really comes down to what are the worlds that are created and, and where can the entertainment space really live within it. And, you know, I think Hollywood's on board right now, but the applications are not quite as clear. And there are a lot of companies that are looking into it. 
but it, everyone seems to be figuring it out right sure. now. If you were starting a business, we're talking about VR, but if you were starting a business in online video right now in the digital space, what would you create if you're starting from scratch? This is so hard because it's one of my favorite questions. Mm-hmm. It was one of my favorite questions to ask people uh, just having conversations in the industry. And now it's absolutely my favorite question that I get to ask on every podcast. And I want to have a really good answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are starting a business today. I can't imagine doing anything else. Paladin Software is 100% where our passion, enthusiasm, and excitement lay. If I had to do something completely different in the online video space, I would build, and this would require an exorbitant amount of money and huge audience, but assuming it were realistic, I would build the first virtual MVPD where I would be aggregating all of the different OTT, SVOD platforms, AVOD platforms, because as we see an explosion in devices and places to consume content, no one wants to manage that. And we want one cohesive place where we can receive those feeds and manage our preferences. So... I would find that acronym, I think, yeah. for the audience so people understand. Yeah, I was going to think MVBDB. I know, and I was like, I would build a virtual MVPD, which stands for Multi Channel Video Programming Distributor. Yeah, so distribution. Correct. Hub. Yeah. Content is king, but distribution is God. Now that's a good answer. And linking all of those distribution sources into one cohesive portal where people can set preferences for their kids to only access the content that they want and create show viewing habits and create a social environment where you can engage with the content and share your favorite moments with your friends and get recommendations analogous to what Netflix has done with their very powerful recommendation engine all in one place so that you don't have to bounce around between uh, the various apps and uh, OTT platforms and subscription video services. That would take a lot of money, but that would be a brilliant company. I think that's ultimately where Google and Apple are going to go. Potentially Facebook, if they get more aggressive in the media side of the space. But that is a very clear opportunity for those two that are already immersed in the content space. All right. So where can people find out more about you, whether it's to get in touch or to sure. find out more about your background, etc.? Through the Pixels website, obviously, is the primary best way to get me. James? I'm on LinkedIn. Check us out at paladinsoftware.com. And of course, please keep listening to the All Things Video podcast. You took my line. That, that, that was my job. Uh, anyway, thank you both for joining me and also, James, for having me on as, as the host and allowing me to ask you questions. Best of luck to you on Ben Pixels and to you, James, on Paladin. It's really exciting, and I can't wait to hear more and see it develop. Thank you. Yeah, no, this my was pleasure. a blast. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. This has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. 